Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Michael Fricaro, the Chief People Officer of MasterCard. In his role, Michael is responsible for all HR functions globally, including driving cultural transformation and building leadership capability. Prior to joining MasterCard, Michael was a core member of the HR leadership team at HSBC Group in Hong Kong. Earlier, he held senior HR positions in banking and financial services in Australia and the Middle East, working extensively across different cultures. Michael and I were introduced some time back by the MasterCard CEO, Ajay Banga, another great leader. During this time, I've had the opportunity to interact with many individuals at MasterCard, and I can say that it is a company that cares deeply about not only its employees, but also the broader communities it serves. The social impact that the MasterCard Foundation has been making is phenomenal. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the, on the show, Hapri. Glad to be here. Thank you, and uh, glad to have you. And uh, you, you, you've had an international background that one can expect from someone leading an international organization. Uh, tell us about your journey and how this international experience has shaped you as an individual. Yes, so my journey actually, it's almost like accidental journey, if you will, because uh, when I left university, um, there was one thing I knew. I actually studied education uh, and uh, was a secondary high school teacher in, uh, in one of the suburbs in Sydney. And, um, and for me, that was, that was my focus. But I had a, a mentor at the school. She was um, a lady who was um, advanced in her career. And she, she spoke to me about three years into my uh, tenure as a, as a high school teacher and said, Michael, um, maybe you could do something else. And uh, I wasn't sure whether it was a vote of confidence um, that she saw something in me or whether it was a vote of no confidence. She thought I was better served doing something else. But it, it really spurred a, a really fundamental question in my mind about what is it that I want to do. And um, at that point um, in Australia, uh, the government had been investing through what was called a training guarantee levy where industries um, which had a payroll over a certain amount had to spend a percentage, uh, was 1%, 1.5%, 2% um, of their payroll on training. And there was this, this big wave of uh, demand, people with some kind of education and interest in, um, in training to enter into the corp world. And that was really my, my foray, my step into, um, into the corporate world. And I worked for a company that was in technology that basically developed um, banking application software for, uh, for the banking sector across Australia. So, um, so that was sort of the start into uh, human development, human capital, uh, management development. And uh, from there, I just got this um, huge interest to invest in my own education as well. Uh, both university to uh, accommodate or accumulate other qualifications, but also with this idea about what pathways my education could actually take me to. And so after about um, 10 years working in this, uh, this organization, there was an opportunity to work abroad 
um, in Saudi Arabia. Um, and, um, and I took an opportunity to, um, to pack up uh, things. I had a young family at the time, and we moved to Riyadh um, in Saudi Arabia, and I worked for a bank there for a couple of years. And, and I guess the story, if I, I'm not going to go through every aspect of it, but the story for my career is always these turning points. You know, the, the lady at, at my school, um, the turning point around this opportunity in the Middle East. And then when I came back to Australia, there was another turning point where an opportunity came up to join HBC in Hong Kong. But there are always these learning points. And I, I find that for me, it was always about um, this, this uh, curiosity, um, this ambition, always connected to people and advancing you know, organizations and people. I know it sounds a little cliche-ish, but that was the way uh, it started. And I would never have dreamed when I uh, started off my career that I'd be sitting here in this company of MasterCard running, uh, you know, the people function in, uh, in a Fortune, you know, 500 uh, company with a great CEO and great people and colleagues here. So I'm living the dream, if you will. And, and, and quite an adventurous background you have there. You, you know, most people would hesitate to move to another country, let alone a different continent. And, you know, you, you did that three times. I did. I did. And, um, you know, a lot of support uh, from family. But, you know, there's a lot of lessons learned along the way. You know, you learn a lot about yourself, uh, your resilience level, uh, your appetite for change and adapting to different environments, but also the personal side you know, the impact on your family um, and the challenges of moving families and young children, um, the impact it has on parents that don't want to see you leave, um, you know, the children that are, that, you know, uh, are adventurous and so forth. And obviously your wife and, and your, your partner, um, it's, there's a lot of uh, factors to contend with, but it's a huge learning and I always encourage individuals that having a career conversation you know, you've got to do what's right for you. And there's no, there's no one right or wrong approach to this. Um, but, um, but for me, it's, it's, I've had this amazing journey and what I've seen and what I've been able to experience and what I've learned from uh, being in other cultures and different environments. It's just been incredible. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Well, that's great. <clears throat> so uh, we, we are discussing future work today. Right? So what does that mean to you? Someone, someone who's a you know uh, leads a, an, a massive organization. Yeah, yeah. Look, we've been we've been discussing future of work uh, for a number of years. In fact, when I first came into the role uh, as people officer, one of the first pieces of work that I, I did with my team was to actually talk about the future of work. What did it really mean um, for our organization? What does it mean for the industry that we operate in? What does it mean for society? And so we did quite a bit of research up front, working with our analytics team. We worked with some academics. We worked with history leaders and with our peers to really uncover what is the future of work. Is it in the early phases? It was all about you know automation, robotics, artificial intelligence. All of this was going to um, take jobs away, um, and there was a level of anxiety and fear uh, that was being brought in. So there was a, a psychology and behavioralist aspect to the future of work, 
Um, but there was the other side, which was about, you know, what are the great opportunities that come from reimagining um, the way that work gets done? And, uh, and that was really the, the first start of uh, how we began thinking about it at MasterCard, laying out all of the different aspects that we need to consider, but then what are the practical implications for our work and what we do and what are the kind of policies and benefits that we need to, um, to think through to really look at, um, at the future of work. So, so we, we did a couple of things. One was around, you know, we were early adopters for um, technology and technology transformation, sort of one piece. So we, you know, used chatbots and um, experimentation with artificial intelligence to increase capacity of basic work and function. So if I think about our global business service center, uh, where we process, you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, um, basic HR questions and so forth, there are numerous tools that are available that as we kept growing as a company, now since I've been here, we've grown five times the size from when I joined in 2012, um, we couldn't just keep growing uh, our human capital. We also had to find efficiencies. And, and this was a way of finding and, and extracting capacity in our workflows by using uh, technology. So that's, that's of one piece. But the other, the other piece about the future of work really came to a part where I, I really love uh, working for MasterCard is around the cultural aspects. What does it mean? What are the, what are the issues that people are dealing with as it comes to the future of work. And so we've also changed the profile of the people that we have. We have people that um, we've got over 55% of the workforce is millennial. Um, in India, where we've got a big operation, it's 82%. Um, so we've got, we've got a multi-generational workforce and uh, the future of work means different things for people at different stages of their career. So we've had to think very differently about Things like um, health and well-being, uh, mental well-being. We've had to think about um, what do we do from a constant uh, learning um, aspect and culture to ensure that learning is uh, is a really core aspect of our culture. Um, and so there's a number of those aspects. Well, from a cultural aspect uh, that we've had to draw into the organisation as well, and the kind of behaviours that you need as you think about the future of work. What's interesting now is we're actually thinking about the future of future of work. And I think this crisis, this COVID-19 crisis, has really forced us to rethink about um, our work and how work is done. So I'll give you a statistic. 97% of our workforce today is all working remotely. There, there is, you know, 3% and essentially the 3% are some of the essential workers we need to come in because we've got cables and we've got certain activities that require people to be physically in the premise. But everyone else is working from home. So we're now working through with all of these, um, these changes, what will the future look like? Do we need to have these big facilities and buildings? Um, when we bring people back into the office, what will the office layout look like? How do we practice social distancing? Do we have physical meetings? Will we be doing meetings remotely? So there's a whole range of things.
themes that we're now exploring at the moment. So I, I continue to find this topic fascinating um, and I think we're learning as we're going along uh, in this journey. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employer intermobility can license the Experfy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Yeah, so, so you know, we've, we've all come to appreciate uh, uh, remote work, and I think the, uh, the obviously pros and cons of uh, remote work, but generally what I found, uh, so I started my career in the financial services as well, um, and, and I find that banks and financial institutions are often um, not as uh, open to such changes and, and COVID-19 has kind of become the agent of digital transformation in ways we'd never imagined, right? So, so, so you, you, you think that people are going to be more open-minded in the financial industry as a result? I, I really do. I really believe so. I mean, I'm on a number of um, CHRO network and calls, um, and we're discussing these particular themes. You know, and there, there's going to be certain job within financial services. Think about bank branches you know, where people are doing their transactions. There can be some reconfiguration of, um, of how a bank branch looks like and how customers will be dealt with. Um, but, but generally speaking, you know, there are, there are a number of jobs that can be done remotely. And I think there was some stigma, um, even with some managers and leaders, that if you're not present physically in the office where the manager is and where the team is, how work be done? And I think this um, social experiment of what we're going through right now with COVID-19 is actually demonstrating that um, you know, people's productivity, um, the way that people interact, social cohesion, all those things that you think can happen in a physical environment can also happen in a virtual environment. And there's, there's pluses and minuses uh, with both, but I think there is going to be much more of an appetite at the other end of this than there was because, you know, in most cases, proven that it can work. Mm -hmm. And and another aspect of uh, this is uh, the the contingent workforce, freelancers, right? When you think of future work, that's what kind of pops in your mind as well. And so so how would you describe the interaction of such people or use of such folks within your organization? Yeah, so we, we do use, um, uh, you know, contingent workers and, and gig workers um, for certain projects. And, and quite often, you know, where there are peaks of, of work we require, let's say from a technology uh, perspective, we will um, engage with, um, with contingent workforce organisations to bring in uh, specific skills that we need to complete a task. And when that project or task winds down, Either they get moved and redeployed to something else or they, they wind off. I, I do see that in the future, uh, there will be a continuation of the, the use average of, of contingent workers. Um, certainly for our industry, 
I'm not sure about others, but I, I do see that. Um, what what I what I would say is that there is this um, this aspect around how do you ensure that when you're leveraging these contingent workers, um, you can be very clear and deliberate and intentional about the kind of work they're doing. How do you check for the quality of the work? How do you ensure, even from a security perspective, that you're able to vet um, kind of work that's being done um, from a safety and security perspective as well? And I think it does does raise some of those uh, questions as well. Um, but but you but I believe that we'll continue to see that as a as a, a part of our workforce as we do with our regular uh, full time employees. Mm -hmm. So so uh, other than the, the the question around how do you manage uh, a freelancer are, are there other concerns and perhaps security of data and uh, what what are the other uh, things that are hurdles that need to be overcome yes some of it is um is the security of data um and being very clear about what kind of access um individuals contingent workers will have to to data i think it's an important part um, the other important part is um, is around commitment to the mission, um, and so you know quite often you know you'll have contingent workers that uh, that roll in, roll out. Um, but you also want them to be you know very committed to your cause and your mission, and therefore that's another important part. And so the, the there is a, a line that you have to also ensure it's not crossed. There is a blurring of the line around you know, contingent workers and and who they are and their employees and who they are from a culture perspective as well. And, and I think, you know, as we continue to go through this um, journey of blending workforce as well, being very mindful about how you still get the same level of output commitment with contingent workers, because at MasterCard, at least I can speak from, from our experience here, do treat people like one big family um, and uh, you know there are there are aspects where if you're a contingent worker, the badge you wear is a different colour to your um, your regular employee, um, and that's done from a, a security perspective. But um, but you want to ensure that they still feel engaged in what you do and and how you operate. And I think there there's some of the other uh, you know consequences or impacts that we we continue to work through. So, so um, you know, I, I think that um, brings me to the next question around uh, culture. And Mastercard's done uh, a tremendous job in building a, a people-centric culture. <clears throat> can can you speak to that and and how you've been able to achieve that? Yes, the um, the culture is a an amazing story here at Mastercard. You know, and I would would premise it around a, a ten-year journey because we know. Uh, cultures don't don't shift um, overnight, um, but it does start with leadership, um, and uh, you know a lot of this credit goes to our CEO, who when he came into the organisation, he recognised tremendous amount of opportunity and potential from the business perspective. He saw that you know Mastercard was seen as a credit card company, um, and the the joke at the time was that Mastercard was a place where Bankers would come and tire. It was almost like a country club feel, and um, and he he felt that there is so much untapped potential that the only way to achieve 
you know, the business outcomes and what we were promising the street and our customers was really to, um, to shift the culture. And, um, and it was a couple of aspects. One was around the kind of diversity of people that we'd bring in, the kind of experiences, um, the kind of backgrounds. So not just recruiting from, you know, single sources like banks or other processes, but also from technology, government, retail, consulting, a whole range of, and, um, and the premise there was if we're going to be, you know, this, um, this powerhouse in the payment space, the only way that we could innovate was actually by creating an environment where everyone, anyone from any background would be welcomed and that their ideas would actually value rather than having some person who comes from the same school or the same background be thinking the same way, that's not going to propel innovation. And so it was those kind of principles that really helped us think through the, the culture. And then we led on uh, three critical principles of culture. One was around uh, full risk-taking. So the idea here was that if we're going to enter into new markets, new segments, um, compete uh, in different areas, that we're not always going to have all the information, but we're going to have to make some decisions and actually take some risks rather than deferring everything to a committee and to another committee make decisions. The idea was let's instill for risk taking into the culture. That was one. The second was around a sense of urgency. So again, linked to the first one, this was all about speed. Um, and that if you're going to innovate, you can't just wait until everything is perfect. You have to push things out, you have to test things, and um, you iterate along the way. Having this sense of urgency rather than bureaucracy. And then the final principle was really around ownership, that part of the culture had to be that if you walked to the cafeteria and you saw a little paper or you saw um, a, a dropping somewhere, you would treat it and treat the place as it was your home. And you wouldn't just pretend that you didn't see it and walk past it. You'd come down and you'd pick it up and you'd put it into the, into the wastebasket. But this whole sense of ownership that we wanted our people, our employees, to feel a part of this organisation, that everything we did was, um, was part of a joint ownership. They were really three principles. And so our performance management, our leadership executive programs were all premised around those three principles that we, uh, we encouraged. If I fast forward to um, 2019, last year, as we continue to grow, and I mentioned we've grown five times from since when I joined, both organically, but also through acquisitions, the question was, is our culture still relevant today as it was 10 years before? So what, what we did, my team and, and some business leaders, we actually did an employee crowdsourcing. We actually reached out to 400 employees from the acquired companies, from the different markets around the world to say, are these three principles that we outlined still relevant? Is there anything different? And so what we, what we landed on was three principles still resonate for all our 20,000 employees, but there were a couple of adds to it. One was simplification. So this additional principle that in the world of um, over-communication, 
an industry such as ours where there is so many voices for customers as well as internally we need to make things simpler so that's been an added principle that we've added into our culture and then the other aspect the most important one is um, uh, decency that everything that we do is underpinned by this culture of DC and so RJ probably a few years ago talked about you know we hire people for their IQ their EQ but most importantly is their DQ the decency quotient and and what this really means is that you know we we're a winning culture um, we want to compete we want to keep doing great things as a company but it has to be done the right way and the decency quotient is a filter, if you will, which basically is there where we say, you know, my hand is not in your face, it's on your back. And the decency quotient is a way of being a, a reinforcer of all of the elements of our culture that will enable us to go on to better and, and greater things. And that again filters through to the entire organization. So they're really the key principles of the culture um, that really uh, I'm proud of, of, of where we are today. No, that's, that's fascinating. So, so <clears throat> I, I guess mm, philosophically, one can begin with such a vision, but how, how do you implement something like that for 20,000 people? You know, how, how do you actually, you know, realize such a vision? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, look, it is, um, it, it's not something that you just, come in uh, and flip a switch. It's a, it is a multi-year journey. Any kind of uh, transformation um, has to have, has to have a, a vision, um, but then there's all the enablers. So I think things like the, um, for example, job description. So when we were promoting people to, uh, to apply for jobs in the organization, we would say things like, okay, you need to have 10 years experience in financial services or 15 years, we, we took that element out. That's a, that's a cultural shift. When you take away years of service versus impact and demonstration of certain attributes, that's a big message to company and, and candidates to basically say, hey, this organization is really walking the talk around being innovative and they're valuing me not because I've spent you know, 20 years in a different organization, but for what I can bring to the organization. It's those, it's those things. So yes, you can have a big uh, scale program, but, but PowerPoint presentations and placards on walls aren't gonna transform the culture. It's the little nudges, it's these little um, aspects within your systems that really make the change, and it's the way that people behave. Um, and so, you know, recognizing and rewarding those that live the MasterCard way, as well as being hard on the, the areas or the individuals that are not following the MasterCard way. And we give people opportunities um, to, you know, to learn and to use moments where they may have gone away from the MasterCard way as a teaching, a learning moment. That is, that is really critical in basically instilling this across uh, the organization. Well, that, that's, that's great. That's, uh, you, you know, I, I bet a lot of companies can learn from that. Uh, yeah, even startups, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I, as a startup, we have such a hard time uh, building a culture. I, you know, I can't imagine how, 
how it's done at such a large scale. <laughs> it's quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, that, that Peter piece about scale is really the, the one question that RJ and I spoke a lot about because we said, look, you know, when it was 4,000 people, you know, you know everybody. You could pick up the phone and you, you, you know everybody. When you get to 20,000 and you've acquired 10 companies uh, in, a, in a short period of time, you start to lose that personal connection. And so, you know, one of the, one of the challenges you have is how do you scale culture and it is through some of these mechanisms, but it's the constant reinforcement um, for uh, your employees through these mechanisms to bring people together. Even things like with the acquisitions um, to, um, to transfer culture, we have a program to migrate or, or move talent from the acquired company into MasterCard and MasterCard people going into the acquired companies because that transference of knowledge and skills is, is the only, well, one of the ways you can also share uh, culture and best practice. And in fact, we, we learn as well best practices from other organizations we've acquired. There are elements of other cultures of companies that we've acquired. We say, wow, we, we love that. Um, and so things like deployment and the urgency piece, which I spoke about, some of the companies we bought about were very, very rapid in the way that they did it because they were small and they were nimble. So we learnt from that. So it, this is an iterative process. You, uh, you have to find what works for you, but also with the view, this big view of how do you scale and sustain culture. That's extremely important. And, and you also have a program around where folks are required to volunteer for a week. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we have um, we have a number of uh, programs. So one is the um, the volunteer program, volunteering. Um, essentially, we give every employee five days a year uh, to volunteer, and they can do whatever uh, program, uh, whether it's a local community, whether it's a food bank, anything at all. Um, so we have this volunteerism uh, program, which we continue to uh, reinforce. We have. CEO Force for Good Awards. So we recognize people at the year end and quarterly around some of the initiatives that people do. So that's very much embedded in the culture. This, um, this whole social impact um, aspect is not just uh, something on the side. It's very much embedded into, into who we are as well, which is a big draw card as well for, for our people. So, so, so given, given this concern for employees, for people um, in, in your job, and you, you kind of touched on this, that technology is going to make many jobs obsolete, right? It's, it's, um, and there have been McKinsey studies that predict as much as 50 to 70% in some economies. <clears throat> so, so how do we uh, you, you know, think about that issue and, and how are you thinking about it? How, what are you trying to do to, to mitigate the, the negative impacts of that? Yeah, I, I look at it the other way. I look at the, um, the great opportunities that technology and transformation brings to, um, to the world of work. Um, so the number, so for example, um, a couple of years ago, there was, uh, there was talk about cryptocurrencies, and there still is, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, artificial intelligence. I mean, we've actually created jobs. We've actually got an AI garage is what we call it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we've created a lot of other work and opportunities 
as a result of the advance, advancement of, uh, of technology. So I, I do look at it the other way. I think, I think what some of those studies um, may be missing is that, yes, there are certain types of tasks and activities that will go away, but there will be a, a push and a drive to other industries and to other jobs and, and activities. I think that the fundamental message that we give to our employees is around, look, um, the world is, is going to keep changing, going to keep moving. Um, technology is rapidly advancing. And the only way for you to remain relevant and engaged from a work perspective is to devote time to learning. And so, you know, if I think about our operations technology function as an example, you know, we went out for many years, or well, a couple of years ago, and said, look, every employee in our um, operations technology is given at least two hours of, uh, per week to learn, you know, 100 hours a year minimum, um, where it's not frowned upon, it's actually encouraged for them to continue to learn. We've done partnerships with universities. In fact, um, one of the, the universities in St. Louis, where is our main operations technology area, cybersecurity is such an important um, skill and area of expertise for our business that we partnered with um, Washington University as well as our own technical experts and we've developed a curriculum and the professors will go into our um, campus in St. Louis and been training our, our teams over a three month period and they get a certificate at the end and we're scaling that in other parts around the world. So, you know, this whole thing about the future of work and transformation, there may be some industries where it's impacted um, and particularly in areas, um, you know, in manufacturing um, or transportation so forth, then there are certain industries that clearly uh, will be impacted. But for us, we, we actually just pivot it to uh, an up upside and a, an opportunity. Well, that's a great way to think about it. Uh, you know, I think the, the, there's a lot of opportunity and I, with, with the blockchain and uh, AI that, that you, you described. Uh, so so um, absolutely, the, you know, companies like yours are, are actually creating a lot of jobs as well. It is, it is. I mean, I'll give you another little anecdote uh, which links to this, um, but also links to the culture. So uh, as, as part of COVID-19, uh, response. We we are over communicating, and so every fortnight, RJ and myself are hosting uh, an all employee web call, and this is where I will give an update about the business. But the majority of the time, answering questions uh, from employees. Um, and on the seventh of April, RJ talked about he's been receiving so many emails from people wanting to know how they can help our company. And it wasn't about volunteering through you know, philanthropic activities. It was about what more can we be doing in the company? And so on the call, he said, look, um, there are five strategic initiatives that we've got in the business. And I, I won't go through what the five are, but let's say one of them is um, uh, government, right? Let's say government was one, it was one of them. Um, I need 50 volunteers. Um, and uh, what I'd like you to do after the call is send me an email and we will allocate you to, um, to one of these five initiatives. Within a day, we had received over 400 volunteers, if you will, saying, I'm prepared to do whatever you can, um, whatever I can, to actually devote some time, uh, in addition to my job, 
to some of the initiatives. So it, it basically spoke to a couple of things. One is um, you know, the culture that people are willing where they have capacity to be able to step up and do something. But secondly, many of the people that put their hand up, they serve as an opportunity to learn, to be exposed to a different part of our business outside of their core area. And we're linking this now into uh, development plans and part of their career conversations during the year to say, hey, we've, um, we've allocated 100 out of the 400 already, um, but we see that you've got an interest in this particular area and uh, using that as a way of continuing this, uh, this culture of learning in the organisation. So it's just another example of this whole notion about, you know, you've, you've got to continue, find ways, be curious and, uh, and continue to learn. Yeah, and, and, and what, what a better way to learn than actually working on a project of some sort, right? I mean, that, that, that's generally the, the best way to learn. It is. It is indeed. Yeah. So, so uh, Michael, um, any, any parting words for our audience? The, uh, the, well, I think the parting words really is, you know, it's an incredible time right now um, to be sitting in the, uh, the head of HR, the chief people officer position. Someone mentioned me uh, last week, I was on a call and said, you know, the GFC, the global financial crisis, really elevated the role of the chief financial officer. And I think COVID-19 is elevating the role of HR and the, uh, the heads, of, uh, heads of HR as well, because the number of calls that we're on, um, the nav navigating the organization, whether it's facilities, public policy, security, technology, your own HR team um, is just incredible. Um, but but you're learning every day because every day you've you know the first six week was triaging it was reacting these period the period that we're in now is thinking about the future it's about how do we get people back to the office safely um, and then what are the things that have happened that are temporary so some of the policy changes we've made are temporary um, but what are the things that we're learning when we come out of this that will actually be permanent and long-term. And that for me is a really exciting part of this, this next stage. So I'm, uh, I'm really enjoying it. I, I'm loving every minute of it. Um, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again, Harpreet, and uh, I, this has been a, a helpful you know, insight into the world of MasterCard and, and, uh, and the human capital function. Yes, it has been. Thank, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. All the best.